there are passages of Scripture which, even if you've never read the Bible, even if you've been a, never been a part of church, that you know. Maybe you've met people who've quoted the Bible to you, not knowing that it was even from the Bible, or maybe knowing that it was from the Bible and intentionally putting it back to you. Maybe you've heard someone say, well, Jesus said, don't judge. And so we're going to take a look at what Jesus had to say about judging today and what that means. And I looked up, I was curious to see what people thought about this idea of do not judge. And so I kind of just put in, I went on the, my computer and I put in don't judge and to see what sort of quotes and ideas would come up. And some of them said something like this, judging a person does not define who they are, it defines who you are. Another one said, don't judge me because I sin differently than you. Someone else said, before you judge me, make sure you are perfect. Another one said, don't judge my choices if you don't understand my reasons. Another one, don't judge me, you don't know my story. So clearly people get the idea of don't judge. But we have to ask the question, what was Jesus talking about here? As he offered up these words, as he spoke to people, what was he calling his listeners to back then? What's he calling us to now? So Jesus is in the midst of this teaching we've called the Sermon on the Mount we've been looking at for the, for the past several months. And the connection may not be entirely clear between this and what's gone before. But I think it's all in the context of life in the kingdom of God. Jesus has been calling his followers into a grander and a deeper life. As one writer puts it, a good and beautiful life. He's been describing what it looks like to follow him, to have our hearts and our insides changed. And he's been calling us to a very high standard. He talked earlier about you know, adultery isn't simply something you do physically, but it's something you do with your eyes and your hearts. And murder isn't something simply killing a person, but the way you think about a person, the way you speak about a person. So Jesus has set this incredibly high standard. And so maybe that's in the context of that where it might be tempting for followers of Jesus who have this incredibly high standard to look at others and to see people failing to meet it. There's this temptation maybe when we've been called to a high standard. Maybe we're part of an elite group or maybe part of a, a, the, the varsity team and we're looking down on others and we see people who aren't quite meeting the standards and we look down on them. And maybe that's what Jesus is getting at here, that that temptation. But I think he's going even deeper than that. So we're going to take a look at these words from Jesus in Matthew 7. And so he begins simply with, do not judge, or you too will be judged. And so the key seems to be the idea of, what does he mean by the word judge? The, the Greek word meaning krino. And so the Bible uses it in a variety of ways. And so I looked up a few of those. And so one is in Luke 12, 57. It says, why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? And there we get this picture of knowing good from bad, of, of discerning the difference between the two. But in the Gospel of John, he says, does our law condemn a man or judge a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? So here's this context of lawsuits in, in the courts. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne... You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And so there the context, judging is more this kind of governmental authority. Or in John chapter 5, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. And there's a picture of final judgment. And so we see this word judge 
used in lots of different ways. We do the same thing in English. We use it in all sorts of different contexts. So what are some of the contexts? Think about that. What are some contexts we use the word judge for? Anybody ideas? In English. What? The Supreme Court. We have a court, right? We have a, a legal, a judicial system, and we talk about what do we call the people who sit up on the front? They're judges, right? And, they're, and they make judgment. What, what other times do we use the word judge? You judge a contest, right? You can judge a contest of maybe you enter, enter something in a fair or an art fair or the Olympics come and you have the judges, right, who determine the scores that divers or gymnasts get. Any other ones? Those are just a couple, right? I mean, some of the different ways that we use this idea of judging. So here's my question. If, if I were to say to you someone was judging something, is that positive or negative? It, it all depends, doesn't it? It could be either, right? I mean, if we have a judge in the courtroom judging something, we might not like their decision, but in generally it's a positive thing. Or, a, or someone in a sports or a, an art contest judging something. But when we speak maybe of a person judging another person, then we tend to shift from the positive to the negative often, don't we? So we have to ask ourselves, but... Those are all those different ways the, the Bible uses it. There's all the different ways the ancient um, people use it. There's all the different ways that we use it today. But most important for our discussion today was, how was Jesus using it at that moment in time? It seems most likely that he's using it in the sense of condemnation, about standing in the place of God. About, it's not about deciding right for wrong. I mean, he's just been giving a whole sermon where he's talking about here's the right way and here's the wrong way. So I don't think Jesus is getting at this sense of like, well, it's not up to you to decide what's right or wrong. But I think it's more in the sense of not sitting in the place of God. Maybe it's in the sense of not deciding who's deserving of God's mercy. We heard the story from John chapter 8, and it's, there's this trap between the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and Jesus. But it's really about this condemnation of this woman, about determining who's deserving of God's mercy and God's judgment. And that's like maybe a good way to think of it. So as Jesus is talking about it, is to ask ourselves, when Jesus says, don't judge, he's saying, it's not up to you to decide who deserves God's mercy or who doesn't. Or this is how Scott McKnight puts it. He says, perhaps we can simplify it to this. We are to conclude that is wrong and that is good, but we must not pronounce you are condemned by God. So he said, Jesus isn't saying that we can't decide what's right or wrong, but what we're to avoid is to deciding who's condemned. And so maybe the better translation might be say is like, do not condemn, or you too will be condemned. And so he kind of extends and repeats this idea in verse 2, where he says, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so, in other words, the standard we use for other people is going to get used on us. And he kind of continues on with this sort of humorous picture of what that looks like. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? And so here's this picture, this imaginary, this like crazy picture of somebody who's got a beam, a telephone pole, this giant limb stuck in their eye. And they're saying, I think you got a little something over there. Can I get that out for you? He says, why would you do that? Take care of your eyes. He says, 
How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? He goes on, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, one of the things we notice is, does Jesus say, don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye? No. He says, you have to take care of yourself first, but it's not a sense of like, well, you've got a big old plank in your own eye, so don't worry about the speck in your brother's eye. He's saying, deal with that first. In other words, we need to begin with ourselves, and this is where we often fail. And so Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it well when he said it this way. He says, all judging presupposes the most dangerous self-deception, namely that the word of God applies differently to me than it does to my neighbor. I claim an exceptional right in that I say, forgiveness applies to me, but condemnation applies to the other person. The word of God applies differently to me than it does to my neighbor. That's what he's getting at when we get in this idea of judging. When it's kind of like, forgiveness for me, condemnation for you. And so that's what Bonhoeffer is getting at. He said, that's what it looks like when we judge. That's what judging is getting at. And then there's this kind of, Jesus concludes this kind of section of teaching with this strange verse. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. This is one of those where there's probably about eight different ways that people have understood this and trying to understand it. I think the best sense of it is to say that it's likely about in this context of correcting others. And the picture is, you sometimes, and maybe you've experienced, you maybe suggest to someone they're not doing the right thing. You try and correct someone. And what sometimes happens when you do that? Doesn't go well, does it? Maybe they turn and tear you to pieces, they trample. And so there's this picture of, you're giving something that isn't received well, something that somebody doesn't appreciate. You imagine a, a pig, and you have a pig, and there's a feeding trough, and you throw in a bunch of pearls. The pig going to be thankful for the pearls? No. It's in the same way that sometimes in certain circumstances, you have to know that at certain moments in time, or maybe based on your relationship or what's going on, that the advice, the observations that you give to someone else may not be received well. And so Jesus is calling us to this sense of wisdom. And so the question is, what is Jesus calling us to when he's saying, don't judge? And I think one good way of thinking about it is what James Bryan Smith calls judging versus assessing. And so he talks about assessment is okay. I mean, assessment is this idea of determining what's right or wrong, but judging is making evaluation without standing in solidarity. Or John Wesley puts it this way. He says, the judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. Judging that Jesus condemns here is thinking about another person in a way that is contrary to love. In other words, contrary to love is, love is what? Deciding or wanting the best for the other person. So maybe as we begin to, to become people who don't judge, we start with asking ourselves, why do we judge? And how can we take the place, or how can we do what Jesus is calling us to do? And so we might ask ourselves that first question, why do we have this tendency, or why do other people have this tendency 
Why do some people have this tendency, however you want to frame it, to judge other people, to, in the sense that Jesus is talking about, to condemn other people, to put them down? Yeah, exactly. One of the reasons is if we feel better about ourselves sometimes, right? Sometimes we're, we're going through, we know we've got these faults, we know we've got these problems, so we look at somebody else and we say, oh, look at all the problems they've got. And then maybe we want to make sure they know how bad they are, because that just makes us feel a little bit better. It's a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, is that in any way connected to love that Wesley talks about? No, not at all. But it's the truth that sometimes this is the way we respond. We see something in somebody else and maybe we feel guilty about our own sin. We know that we struggle with something and we don't like to admit that. We don't like to admit that we're struggling. We don't like to admit that we have problems and issues. So what we want to do is we want to point out somebody else's. Somebody says, oh, I, I've noticed, Carl, you're, you've got this thing where, you know, your anger comes out once in a while. Yeah, but did you see that guy? <laughs> or, or, more, or sometimes it's like, oh, but what about you, right? And it goes back because we feel better about putting ourselves. Another reason that sometimes we judge other people is what uh, Smith calls condemnation engineering. And what he means by that is, there is sometimes this misconception we have in our mind that if we judge someone, if we tell them all their problems, that we can fix them, that we can make them better. Now, I want to ask you this. How many times has somebody pointing out your flaws made you a better person? Not, I mean, sometimes, right, if it's done in the right way and in the right mode, we're going to talk about what that might look like, but oftentimes it doesn't work. Why? Because sometimes we need to see it for ourselves, right? Sometimes I've had those experiences where somebody points out something, and I'm like, no, that's not true at all. And then a, weeks go by, maybe a month goes by, and all of a sudden I do something, I say something, I realize like, oh, yeah, that is true, isn't it? And it often means so much more, it, it sinks in deeper when we see it for ourselves. The other reason is because sometimes when it comes from somebody else, if it's not flowing from, if it doesn't flow from love, we're going to reject it. We're going to be like the dog or the pig. We're just going to turn and trample and stomp and chew on somebody. Sometimes it's just not constructive. Sometimes that condemnation engineering is not, it's not constructive. It's just pointing out the flaws. And other times it's retributive. It's just getting back at you. just want to put somebody down. You want to hurt them. The other reason this condemnation engineering doesn't work is because we fail to see our own issues. That's that plank in our own eye, that we put ourselves in God's place and we decide to judge. So what can we do then as followers of Jesus? How can we become people who aren't doing what Jesus commands against? How do we become the kind of people who don't judge or better yet, don't condemn? How do we begin to learn to not do that? Because that's what Jesus is getting at. He's getting at Becoming this kind of people that's different. Becoming a kind of people that looks more like him. Becoming the kind of people who naturally respond in this way, whose hearts are concerned for other people. And one of the ways we do that is sometimes through an indirect method. We can't always stop directly the judging and the condemnation, but we can begin with other practices. We can begin to do other things, and they can train us in the way through the power of the Spirit to become that kind of people. 
And so one of the ways that we can begin to be people who aren't condemning, who aren't judging, and there's a lot of reasons for doing that. One is because Jesus tells us not to. The other is if you were to ask people outside the church, what do you want to guess one of the first two or three words they would use to describe people in the church is? Hypocrite, Hypocrite or judging, right? Judgmental. And so we want to be people who are attractive, who draw people in, who, who live this compelling kind of life. And so one of the ways we can begin to do that as followers of Jesus is with the simple practice of avoiding gossip. Gossip is one of those strange things because in the church, we have this tendency to rank things differently, and some sins get called out, and some don't, and some seem acceptable. So what do I mean by gossip? Gossip, I would say generally, speaking negatively about someone who's not there. It might be a simple definition of gossip. Now, are there times where maybe that's where if you're doing a, an evaluation of someone for an employee thing, there's, there are certain times, but we generally know what's gossip and what's not gossip, right? I mean, we can sit there and say, well, I probably shouldn't. When you begin a conversation, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but just stop. You know, I probably shouldn't tell you this, so I won't. Or maybe you don't even need to say it. You just, you just, just don't say anything. But gossip is one of those things that has this tendency to destroy the church. And it's often because it is. What is it? It's condemnation engineering. Why are we often gossiping? Because we want to bring, sometimes it's because we like the attention that we get from sharing the gossip. But sometimes it's because we want to bring that other person down. We want to make sure that those, that person's brought down and we, we feel a little bit better about ourselves. Maybe we feel better, a little bit better about the group we're in. When we're sitting with a group of folks and it's like, oh, did you hear about and what they're doing? And what's going on there? There's this attempt to condemn the other person, to put them beyond God's mercy so that we build ourselves up and feel a little bit better. It's a form of judging, and so one of the simplest things we can do as followers of Jesus is to begin to practice not gossiping. And not gossiping can mean not only the speaking half of gossiping, but gossip requires two parties, right? The one speaking and the one listening. So it may be that you're at the other end of the conversation when somebody comes to you and says, I probably shouldn't tell you this, and you just say, then don't. And somebody might then turn to you and say, oh, aren't you all high and mighty, aren't you? And so you get the judgment back, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a vicious circle, isn't it? It's terrible. But it's what we're called to do. We're called to say we need to stop those things where we are. So what I would invite us to do, Fruitland, is to be those kind of people. When the conversations are happening at coffee or after church or in the parking lot and, and something's going on and you feel like it's bordering on gossip, to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be talking like this. Didn't Jesus call us to something a little bit more? And that's where the important part of not judging comes in and not condemning is that when we see something, we need to stand in solidarity with the person. Because the condemnation engineering, the judging that Jesus is talking about is the kind that simply points out what's wrong. We have a document we produced a number of years ago here at the church we call our Covenant for Christian Community a way we live together in our council. We read it every month before we have our meetings. There's a copy hanging in the, in the conference room. 
And one of the lines in there as it talks about what kind of community we want to be, it says we, we're encouraging one another to grow in our walk with Christ. And so this is what not judging or not condemning looks like, is to come alongside someone. So if you point out something in someone's life, you also say to them, hey, I see you have this problem. I notice you have this issue going on in your life, this struggle that you're going through. And instead of simply walking away and saying, you know, you got a problem with this and you need to get better at it, maybe the conversation continues said, I'm going to be by your side. I notice this struggle you have with greed. And because I love you, because I am your brother, because I am your sister, and I know that you want to be a better follower of Jesus, I know that this is not what you want for your life. I know it's not what God wants you really. So I'm going to stand by you and help you through it. I'm going to help you. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to pray for you. Because it's a very different thing when someone comes to you and just says, you got a problem, and they walk away. As opposed to saying, here's something I see in your life, and I want to help you with that. I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to encourage you. And maybe even there's this moment of like, I see this going on in your life, and you know what? I struggle with that too. And maybe we can help one another. We can walk through this together. We can meet together. We can talk about it. We can pray for one another. We can encourage one another. And I mean something more than this phrase that became popular a couple decades ago, accountability partner. And my experience, and maybe this is just me, my experience of accountability partners is just someone like you call up and say, I screwed up. Like, yep, you did. Get better next week. That's not, that's accountability. Yeah, you're checking in and saying, I, I blew it. But that's not what Jesus wants from us. He wants something more. I think he's inviting us to be like, an accountability partner isn't what we need. We need an encouragement partner. We need an alongside partner. We need somebody who's coming beside us and really helping us. Not someone who just, we just report to and say, oh, I didn't have a good week. You know, the small group meets together and everybody goes around and say, oh yeah, I struggled with that again this week. And everybody says, yep, okay, see you next week. And you meet back again. It's the kind of, partnership, the kind of group that meets together and says, okay, so how are we going to, how can we help you get through that? How can I be an encouragement to you? How can I be a support to you? Can I be the person you call? Can I be, can I pray for you? Can we talk about it? Can we find some resources, some ways to help? And that's what Jesus is getting at in this sense of doing this. And so this is where we move beyond the condemnation because the condemnation simply points out that something's wrong with someone. And Jesus isn't saying we don't have a place to do this. Because I know for myself, I don't see all the faults in myself. Everybody else sees them a whole lot better than I do. And I think that's true for most of us, which means if we all have a commitment to being better followers of Jesus, to looking more like him, to living a life that's shaped more like the life of Jesus, we need each other. We need each other to see where we're struggling, and we also need each other to help us in those struggles. And so when Jesus says, don't judge He's suggesting something deeper. He says, don't be somebody who just points out that someone's a failure. Don't be someone who just simply points out that they're beyond God's mercy, but instead enter into their lives and walk beside them. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul talks about this very thing. In chapter 6, 
verse 1. This is where we get the idea. That obviously, he says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore the person gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. So he's like, he's saying, this is what we're called to do. Paul makes the same point that Jesus, we're put together as a people. And this is why, one of the reasons we meet together, this is why church matters. Because the life of Jesus isn't a solo project. We need each other not only to see our struggles, but to help us in our struggles. And so as Jesus is saying, don't judge, he's encouraging this way of life that's living, living different. Final thing we might consider in this, so we, we avoid gossip, we become people who don't simply point out errors, but we walk beside people. The third thing we do is we practice introspection and confession. Remember the story that Jesus told? This picture that he paints, he says, before you remove the speck in your brother's eye, what do you, what do you need to do first? Take that big old plank out, get that two by four out of your eye, right? Well, we can't do that unless we stop for a moment and we consider what's in our lives. And so then one of the steps to begin to be people who aren't judging, who aren't condemning, is to begin with the life of saying, I need to stop and I need to take time and I need to reflect on where I'm at fault in my life, where I'm failing, where I'm missing the mark that God has called us to. It's one of those parts of we in the evangelical world, in the Christian world, we like certain parts of our relationship with God, but some parts are harder. And one of those is confession. To going to God and admitting, and it's just, it's a nature, it's a, in some sense, part of human nature. We don't like to admit we're wrong. We don't like to admit we're failing. We don't like to admit we're, we're not doing all that we're supposed to do, although some of us kind of have the exact opposite, don't we? There's some, there are folks who just like, they're just like, I'm just a total failure. I never do anything right. But generally speaking, we have this trouble. And so God invites us into this time of confession to come before him and to admit that we have struggles and failures. The scripture talks about we've all sinned and fall short. We all miss the calling that God has for us. And so he invites us into these times. And so I would encourage you, invite you to make this a regular part of your practice of prayer. Whatever that looks like. And some of you may pray in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, different times, long periods, short periods, whatever it looks like. To find some way to build in a rhythm where you're spending time in confession before God. In confession before God... As I've said many times before, you're not telling God something he doesn't already know, okay? It's not a secret like, oh, God, I you might not know this, but God's like, yeah, I do. We're not telling God something, but what are we doing? We're opening ourselves up to the healing. We're opening ourselves up to God's forgiveness. And so one of the things that we do as we enter into this time of confession is we need to invite God to go on that journey with us. We need to invite the Spirit of God to go with us. And we do that for two reasons. The first reason is if we don't invite God into our time of confession, if we don't invite God's Spirit to come along with us, is one is we might not be honest. We might go to God and say, God, I want to confess. I really didn't do anything wrong this week, so I'm pretty, I think I'm okay. Uh -oh. yeah, life's been good. Oh, there was that, yeah, there was that one little thing. But other than that, so we invite the Spirit to say, okay, to shine a light and to show us those places 
And the words that we often use in confession, those things we've said and left unsaid, the things we've done and the things we've left undone, the ways we failed to love God with our whole heart, soul, strength, and mind, love our neighbor as ourselves, and this picture of what it is. So we invite God in to shine the light. The second reason goes along with that. It's a corollary to that. Because if we invite God to just shine the light and show us our mess, it can be terrifying. Or it can be depressing. It can lead us to despondency and to despair. And so we invite the Spirit to come alongside us to remind us that even in the midst of all that mess, we're loved and we're forgiven. And so we invite the Spirit for those two reasons. One, to help us be honest with ourselves, but then when we are honest, to be there to remind us that we are still loved. And so in a few moments, we're going to come to the communion table. And the communion table, in part, is a way where we do that as a public confession. Not in the sense that we all stand up and admit all the problems we have. But in a sense that we all come and we all take communion. And as each one of us takes that piece of bread and that cup, we're saying we need forgiveness. We're making a public confession. We're looking at our brothers and sisters sitting beside us and saying, I need Jesus. I need his forgiveness. And so we're beginning that process. We're also reminding ourselves of the life of Jesus. Because as I said earlier, one of the things that what Jesus is getting at is we're saying with this that no one is beyond God's mercy, that we're not condemning, we're not judging. And we're reminded what Paul said to the church in Rome as he was talking about this. He said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we're reminding ourselves of Jesus' approach to us. Just as he approached the woman caught in adultery and said, you're not beyond God's mercy. He also says, what? Go and leave your life of sin. But he says, no. But he also says, you are not beyond God's mercy. And so as we come and we take communion, we're reminding ourselves we're not beyond God's mercy. And in that same step of reminding ourselves we're not, God reminds us, and neither is anyone else. No one is beyond my mercy. No one is beyond my grace and forgiveness. People might refuse it, but I will offer it to all. And so when we come to that table, we remind ourselves that in the same way that in Jesus there is no condemnation for us, we are called to be people who follow Jesus and don't condemn others. Who don't look to others and say, oh, he's beyond God's mercy. She's beyond God's help. She's no way. But instead to be the people who offer in the same way that bread. So even as we pass the bread and the cup, and we pass it down the pews and we're handing it to the person next to us. It's a picture of what we do to the world around us. And we offer to them Jesus. And we offer to them to a Jesus who says there is no condemnation in me. And so what we might picture ourselves doing as we go into the world is when we have conversations with people and as we see people in their struggles, realize that we have to offer in love. What we offer them is not condemnation, is not judgment, but what we're called to offer them is Jesus. His grace, his love, his forgiveness. So may we be that kind of people, Fruitland. The people who offer the love of Jesus. The people who know that there is no condemnation for us and then in turn refuse to condemn those around us. 
May we be known by our love. May we not be known as people who are judgmental, but people of mercy and of grace. Amen.